we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Hello, I am Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. We're talking about indoctrination tonight. I'm giving up on my usual opening statement, and I'll let some folks who've said it better than I possibly could. Let's begin with an old favorite. Give me four years to teach the children, and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. Who was that? Vladimir Lenin. Education is a weapon whose effect depends on who holds it in his hands and at whom it is aimed. Joseph Stalin. He who he alone who owns the youth gains the future. Adolf Hitler. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. To be cured against one's will and cured of states which we may not regard as disease is to be put on a level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason or those who never will, to be classed with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. That's one of my favorites, C.S. Lewis. And then, all the way back in 1920, Booker T. Washington said, there is a class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. There is a certain class of race problem solvers who don't want the patient to get well. And finally, as Malcolm X said, oh, I say it again, you've been misled, you've been had, bamboozled, led astray, you've been took. My guest tonight is Christopher Aaron, a California attorney who's taken up the fight against racist indoctrination in our schools. He was educated in California, including in the heart of the free speech movement at UC Berkeley with a degree in political science, and he also went to Berkeley Law School. While in the U.S. Army, Mr. Aaron worked as a German translator, and he spent most of his legal career practicing law in Germany before returning to California. He spent four years on the Paso Robles, that's in California, school board, working to formulate an even-handed ethnic studies program. Welcome to the show, Mr. Arend. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, let's just get started. What made you decide to run for the school board? 
Well, back in 2018, a lady who had asked me many years previously to run in the, for the school board came to me again and asked me to run. This time, my son was going to the schools in the district and was not going to Catholic school. So this time I said, okay, I'll run. Our local school district was going through a very severe financial crisis resulting from mismanagement, both by the board and by the new superintendent. Actually, had been there a couple of years. And so I said, okay, this is a mess. And as an attorney, I'm used to helping fix messes. So I'll hop in the fray. And I was elected and served for four years. Well, okay. How did this whole critical race theory problem hit you? I mean, were they talking about it on the school board? Did you have your it kids come really home from that. school? Yeah. You know, talking about it. I was aware that it was an issue in higher education that had been around for quite a while in law schools. And it arose when we had a request from our students to, from some students to offer an ethnic studies course at the high school. We had offered one many years previously, but uh, the teacher had retired. Some students wanted it done again. I was happy for students to want to learn anything. So I said, fine, we can set that up. We've got a teacher who's willing to do it. A couple of uh, conditions, though, the main one being no critical race theory. I did not, I wanted a so-called constructive ethnic studies course and not one of these typical liberated ethnic studies course where uh, they're out really to teach the revolution. Uh, we got the we got that ethnic studies course approved, and in the course of the discussion, we hit the topic critical race theory. So that uh, a few months later, I authored a resolution to ban critical race theory, the teaching of critical race theory as gospel in our school district. That was apparently the first, as far as I can see, the first such resolution by a local school board in the country. And you can imagine it raised. We had some interesting meetings at the, uh, the before the school board and some interesting public comment before we approved the resolution in August 2021. And since then, I've been giving lectures on critical race theory. And now I've written a book called The Critical Race Theory Scam, Dissecting a Racist Ideology. Well, before we get into that, and we're going to yeah. kind of go through some of the things you discuss in the book, I'd be interested in hearing who, well, not who, but what the people said in some of these meetings, uh, the people who were for having the type of ethnic studies program that you were interested, what some of the parents thought about it. Was there anybody who was against having ethnic studies at all? Well, we had some people who were concerned that the ethnic studies course would be like some of the courses that were already going on in California, that they would be a, basically a call for revolution and racist and you know condemning all white people as privileged. And we would be hearing the type of insanity that uh, spouted, for instance, in the book, White Fragility. So we had some people concerned about that. We had a lot of people on the liberal side of the debate who were concerned that we would be banning critical thinking uh, 
be it in the ethnic studies course or later on when we banned critical race theory. Uh, the one thing that really struck me, though, especially when the discussion about critical race theory had sat both on the conservative side as well as the liberal side, virtually no one knew what they were really talking about because they hadn't read the book. They didn't know what critical race theory was. Well, that's the perfect intro because that's my next question. And and you even said that, and then I'm thinking when people hear the term critical race theory, they might think it's critical thinking, meaning having a serious analysis of some topic. So first of all, we'll talk about what is critical race theory, and it, it's almost misleading that it has the word critical as we everyday people think about it, even though it kind of has a more nefarious background. So could you, one, explain what it is, and then we'll yeah. go into how it got started here. Well, there, there are several definitions floating around in the New York Times and the ACLU and elsewhere where they sort of give a pablum definition that critical race theory is a way of looking at how uh, racism in law has uh, affected society and so on. They, the fairly harmless definition. When it gets right down to it and you read the books on critical race theory, you see it has nothing to do with critical thinking. It has everything to do with critical theory in the Marxist sense of the term. It's an ideology. And this is one of the main lines I draw is the difference between a methodology such as critical thinking and Socrates and all, you know, the good stuff, database analysis and whatnot, and critical theory, which is an ideology. It's based on certain fixed assumptions of fact that you cannot question without questioning the entire ideology. And once you start off with an ideological or firm ideology, such as critical theory, Marx did it by uh, dividing the society into two groups, uh, you know, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, and did that along economic lines. Well, critical race theory, as another type of critical theory, does the same thing, divides society into two groups, but does so along the lines of race. And the two groups are the oppressors and the oppressed. It's uh, And then from there, it engages really only in deductive analysis, very little inductive reasoning. And uh, the result is you get lots and lots of deductive blather about race and society and the law and so on, but not... Uh, not much substance when it gets down to it. Well, why do they call it critical? Well, the word critical theory has been around for quite a while. It goes back to uh, the German uh, Frankfurt School, it was called in the 20s and 30s, early 30s. That was a, a Marxist Institute for Social Research at the University of Frankfurt in Germany. And there, uh, one of the... Uh, uh, leaders of that school, that movement, uh, coined the term critical theory. 
I think because it is a theory that generally exercises or it's a way of generally criticizing society. And of course, theory sounds good. So it became critical theory and uh, that morphed into uh, in the United States into critical uh, legal studies and from there into critical race theory. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting because I, as we said in the beginning, most people think that means it was very analytic thinking when indeed it's not. It just started off with an idea and then made up things to go around the idea, kind of like what's happening in medical research now where they're coming up with a conclusion and then organizing the research to arrive at that conclusion rather That's than having exactly. it you know, open-ended, and then you get the real answer. So uh, I remember when I was in law school, I started in 1992, critical legal theory was all the rage. And frankly, I thought it would stay in the hallowed halls of law school and other academic institutions, but not be come to the level that it is now where these principles, which, as you point out, Marxist principles, are being taught to students. So how did it get so popular in the United States? Well, it's a, it started very small, although our universities have always been susceptible to Marxism. You know, we welcomed Herbert Marcuse, for instance, from the Frankfurt School when the Nazis started shutting down the Institute for Social Research in uh, Germany. Their staff, all of whom were communists, uh, skedaddled to the four corners of the world, many to Paris, to Switzerland, London, Herbert Marcuse and uh, some of his others to Columbia University, for example, and they were welcomed. And they they joined the academic community. Now, the academic community has always, at least since I've known it, and I've been around for quite a while now, it's uh, always had a soft place for Marxists. Uh, the Usually, they were sort of confined to their specialized area of study and so on, but it has spread. It started spreading in law schools in about 1989. There was the first conference about uh, critical legal studies, they were still calling at the time, or critical legal theory. And it started spreading through all law schools. And from there, it also spread into the social science departments. And in the meantime, you have critical race theory affecting even the natural sciences, medical schools. You know, you you hear them talking about practicing anti-racist medicine. That's critical race theory in action. Well, this is, it's very disturbing, and it's one of the reasons I've brought it up up on the show and that I liked your book, because you explain these things very simply. And uh, most people don't get into these sorts of things, and they certainly don't talk about it on the news, God forbid, that um, this... Uh, kind of racist teaching to kids that really should be something that is analyzed, like I say, in law school, where I, I guess I think because it's called theory, it should remain a theory, but it's become 
critical race yeah. practice. It's not so, even a theory in the scientific yeah. in the sense of the scientific method. I learned that you start off with in the scientific method, start off observing facts, then use inductive reasoning to form a hypothesis and with various experiments and iterations through an iterative process, you develop a theory and you are always questioning the theory and so on, always kicking the intellectual tires. Uh, that's not what critical race theory is. It has nothing to do with the scientific theory. It is an ideology and it is, uh, it's, abuses the term theory in the sense of the scientific method, that's for sure. Well, when we get back from the break, I'd like you to go through some of the basic tenets of critical race theory, just so people can see, okay, these are kind of the rules of the game. For now, I am going to talk about my old friend, Kofix Rx. Cold season is here. And it's getting cold outside. People are staying inside more. So it's time for these viral infections to spread. Now, remember, COVID isn't the only viral infection around. We still have colds and we still have the flu. That's why it's important to learn about Cofix RX. It's simple. It's a nasal spray. And that's the best part about it. It's easy. You don't have to take a drug. And what it does, it's got uh, povidone iodine and some vitamin D and xylitol. And um, it has antiviral properties. So you squirt it up your nose. It gets most of the viruses before they have a chance to get down lower in the respiratory tract. Is most of these illnesses start in the nose. And if we can get it there, it might keep you from getting sick. The viruses multiply in your nose for a few days and uh, we'll try to nip it in the bud. One of the things I like about it, it's recommended by a lot of doctors and pharmacists. It was invented by doctors in the USA, and it's manufactured in the USA. So what could be better than that? Just check it out. We have a Kofix Rx button on our page. Click it on. You can read more about it. I love it. See if it's right for you. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with oxy powder it's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas bloating and occasional constipation there's a reason why oxy powder is our number one seller it worked go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15 percent off using the code OUTLOUD. global healing giving you the power to take control of your health naturally 
before the break, I wanted you to talk about the basic tenets of critical race theory. What are, what are its rules of the game? What, what are they telling people are the beliefs? And how are they, I guess what bothers me, how are they phrased to make people think this is a good way to think? Let's, let's start off with one of the things that the proponents of critical race theory did. It's they played with the language. They redefined the term racism. Racism used to mean prejudice based on race. Now it is considered by the critical race theorists to mean racism or prejudice based on race combined with power. And since they say only white people in our society have power, therefore uh, it is it is the white people who are able to be racist and you will actually hear, and I've heard it many times, black people cannot be racist because they don't have the power. Uh, that That's one of the main aspects of uh, critical race theory, this redefinition. And they do it because it then enables them to take a collective view of society, plop people into the uh, two sides, either the oppressor side or the oppressed side. Uh, now, the main actual tenet of uh, uh, critical race theory is that racism is everywhere. It's normal. It's the ordinary way society does business. It's the everyday experience of people of color in this country. Uh, that's uh, it's their fundamental assumption. Racism is everywhere. And of course, when we look for it out there, I, I mean, I don't know. I can't really think of any time I've committed a racist act. Matter of fact, it's even been a long time since I've told the joke about how many pick your ethnic group does it take to change a light bulb. <laughs> uh, but uh, and I'm sure that everyone listening to this podcast, uh, nobody can remember their last racist act. But for the critical race theorists, racism is everywhere. Well, what does this mean when they say it's everywhere? And now we always hear this term systemic racism, that that that's thing, right. you know, that that makes it where there's no way you can get rid of it if it's in the system, like the blood. Yeah. And you start you start then asking them, well, where is it? Is it in our legal system? Of course not. It hasn't been in the legal system now since the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. Matter of fact, anyone engaging in racism in uh, hiring decisions or uh, providing public accommodations is going to be severely punished by the courts. <laughs> they, they, you know, they'll they'll break them. Uh, so it's it's really hard to find. What the critical race theorists do, and this is it's sort of a cute little trick. They say, well socioeconomic disparities, differences in home ownership rates, differences in education levels, differences, you name it, socioeconomic disparities are examples of systemic racism and are themselves caused by systemic racism that leads to actually a circular fallacy that you have 
systemic racism causing systemic racism. And it short circuits a lot of the thought processes of uh, the pro- on the part of the proponents of critical race theory. Well, if it's socioeconomic factors, how do you explain away poor white people, people in Appalachia, and uh, who some are actually worse off, I dare I say, than urban minority people? Quite, quite possibly. The, the critical race theorists don't look at uh, the actual socioeconomic status so much as they look at race. And then they, the socioeconomic discrepancies they look at are those that are measured according to race, such as, uh, let's say, incarceration rates between Black Americans and uh, white Americans, or... Uh, le- levels of higher education achieved in various ethnic groups. Uh, so they do this group think approach and they don't. And if you're lumped in as a white person, it doesn't matter whether you're a poor Appalachian white or uh, uh, Egon, uh, Elon Musk, you're still uh, the uh, in the uh, group of white folks, right? They, they don't differentiate within those groups. Well, do they differentiate between black people? I mean, look at President not, Obama. Not, he no, oppressed? Not, not, not really, not really. They, uh, uh, although some of them, if you uh, read, for instance, Ibram X. Kendi, uh, he discusses various shades of black, that there are those who have a lighter complexion and those who have a darker complexion. So he starts drawing nuances there, but uh, they apply a, and then or they look at the overall average of their of the specific racial groups. This causes them some problem with Asians because they like to think of course as Asians as being people of color, uh, but then on the other hand, Asians in socioeconomic terms, they normally rank higher than every other group of people, uh, every other ethnic group. And it's it's interesting, you know, they, they look at these racial socioeconomic groups. They don't look at other groups where you also find socioeconomic disparities uh, between, for instance, group people who are thinner and people who are thicker, between taller people, shorter people, good-looking people, not-so-good-looking people, etc., <laughs> No matter how you slice and dice uh, a population, you'll probably identify socioeconomic disparities. But for the CRT folks, it's all a matter of race. So when they say everything is based on race and Black people can't be racist, even though we've certainly seen in the old definition of racism, uh, all groups have... I guess, as Walter Williams says, you know, there's a spectrum. You can have preferences, and in his view, economic necessity can overcome preferences. And he gives an example of uh, New York and people who split their homes into these brownstone flats. And at first, they didn't want to rent to Black people. And then they found that uh, white people didn't want to live in a split building. 
So after they'd split these buildings, it's like, oh, well, I guess we need somebody to rent them. And guess who they rented to? Black people. And so a preference economics overcame the preference. And then you when you you take it on a scale, and then if you're the overt racist, you need a kidney transplant, but you find out the kidney is from a black person and you wouldn't take it. You know, so that's the extreme. And there's it's certainly in my many moons of life have seen very few people who are on that extreme. And I'm sure there's plenty of people who've never seen anybody on that extreme. You're right. The racism, actually, as I point out in the book, it racism in the old sense of the term racial prejudice, where you look at somebody and you judge them simply by their external appearance without anything else. That is uh, that fulfills the uh, Webster definition of stupid. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Racism in the old sense is the same as being really stupid. And there are, of course, stupid people in every group. But most people nowadays, even if they have racist in the old sense uh, tendencies, they tend not to act on those tendencies, except really in their personal lives at most. But they're not going to. If they're operating a business, they won't discriminate on race. If they, you know, all the other things that you do and that are public dealings with each other, offering your house for sale on the market, you know, you're not going to discriminate against somebody uh, for racial reasons because that could end up, you know, costing you the price of your house. Well, that's absolutely right. And, and again, that falls into that economic theory. And then the idea that you don't hear ethnic jokes anymore, there's a certain civility that has come over our society, thank goodness. And that's a whole nother issue. It seems to be devolving at this point. But um, where there's some things you do not do in polite company. And yeah, I'm, I'm, that's a good thing. Well, I suppose I got to admit, I always kind of got a kick out of that. How many does it take to change a light bulb joke? But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose you can throw in anything. Look at poor blondes. Remember all the blonde jokes? Oh, yeah. Well, th <laughs> well th those are still permissible, you see. Blonde, uh, making oh. fun of blondes, I think, is still permissible. <laughs> Um, I don't know if there's any blondes out there listening. I want to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that really bothers me in critical race theory is there. Well, there's a couple of things. One, as you point out, they're using stereotypes based on skin color that all black people are supposed to think alike, like how Biden says, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Oh, please give me a break. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. you know, they've taken stereotypes, which we've always considered a big negative and kind of turned them into a positive, like it's okay to stereotype groups because it's all for the greater good of getting rid of racism, presumably. And, um, and then this idea of what they call the voice of color, that only people of color right. can speak on behalf of other members of their group. And it's like, well, 
am I the same as Abram Kendi? I don't even know how he grew up, you know, anything, you know, other than what I've read on the back panel of his book, anything about him and what troubles he's had in his life versus what troubles I've had in my life or my family. And it seems like your family background, where you grew up, what part of the country you grew up in affects affects you more. Sure, but these factors are fairly irrelevant for the critical race theorists. For them, it's all about race. And this leads to, it's not just a simple-minded approach. I mean, they, they pretend to be so intellectual. And when you read the critical race theory writings, the law school or the law review articles and so on, my goodness, that is such BS in there and such senseless blather. But they have couched it in such intellectual sounding language that they aren't really challenged. They they try and intimidate people with their supposed brilliance. And of course, it this theory was able to spread so far in academia and all throughout academia because other uh, academicians were frankly afraid to oppose critical race theory. I had contact with one professor who wrote an article, oh, about 20 some odd years ago, uh, I think 1998 or 1999. He sent it out to over 60 law reviews. One was finally willing to publish it. And it was a very modest article, just you know, questioning a little bit critical race theory. It wasn't a full-out attack, but criticism of critical race theory has been suppressed at the uh, uh, in academia, and that's probably also one reason why it spread so uh, far and wide. Plus, it's been a great opportunity for people to build careers on, frankly, a pile of BS. Well, it's it's interesting you talk about that fear. And 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 now we have people where this has actually happened to various academicians who spoke out and they find themselves ostracized. Some have even lost their job when they try to point out the fallacies and how racist the policy is. But you can see one, you know, nobody wants to lose their job. And two, nobody wants to be called a racist that if you speak out against it, the reply is, well, you're a racist. You need to tell me, and this would be something for everybody to know, and I don't know if you have a good answer to this. If somebody calls you a racist because you try to analyze this and say, I'm not that kind of a person, what kind of answer can you tell somebody? Because you can't just say, I'm not a racist. That that doesn't no, that, quiet that's, them down. Uh, no, I find it helps to do something along the following line. After I've been called a racist, you calling me a racist is equivalent to calling me stupid. And if you look at my academic background, you will definitely see that I am anything but. I do it with a little bit of moral outrage, a little bit of aggression. You got to slap them down. I had a... Uh, Way back when I was studying political science at UC Berkeley after getting out of the army and before going on to law school, actually German law school, uh, that's where I first went uh, to study law, I had a professor, passed away in the meantime, 
He said, when people start throwing an insult, all you can do is tell them. And he said this now to an audience of about uh, 200 undergraduate students. You got to just tell them to go F themselves. <laughs> when they start throwing insults, just break off the chat or respond with a bit of aggression, a bit of, uh, you know, as I Gave you an example, you know, I'm not stupid. Look at my academic background, this type of stuff. Uh, push them, push back on it. Don't allow them to say that. And, uh, you know, don't don't just take it, but but dish it right back. And if and for God's sake, don't say, oh, I'm not a racist. Some of my best friends are you know, <laughs> pick an ethnic group again. It's it's silly. Uh, no, that that never that never works. No, oh. just just show them that by making the accusation, they are themselves acting stupidly. Well, on that note, we're trying to not act stupidly here. I'd like to talk about when we get back from the break, some of what's happened, some real world examples of what's happened because of CRT and especially what's happening with the students. So we'll yep. talk about that when we get back, as well as why you call it the scam. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com, code OUTLOUD. Okay, before the break, I teased with, we want to look at some of the real world issues that have come up and uh, particularly with the students and how it's changed, how we think about things. Uh, 
one thing, and I'll just start off that I just heard on the radio not long ago, is that Oregon schools now have no basic skills to graduate. It's like too many minorities were flunking. Therefore, now we're going to eliminate having basic skills. This is a weird way to go about improving things for minority students. So what are some of the things that have popped up and especially what you've seen with the well, school board? Let me let me set first the foundation. Remember, I talked about the circular fallacy. Systemic racism or discrepancies in socioeconomic data are themselves the cause of these discrepancies. Now, in a computer program, if you do some that circular logic, your computer program doesn't work any further, doesn't proceed any further, it dumps on you. In the case of critical race theory and social policy, what happens that uh, proponents of critical race theory look at a socioeconomic discrepancy, they say, this is itself systemic racism, and how do we get rid of it? Why? Let's get rid of the uh, data or the basis for comparison. So, for example, uh, you can have them saying, let's get rid of standardized testing. We have a discrepancy in standardized test scores between uh, Black Americans and white Americans. Of course, Asian Americans are all the way up at the top and so on. Uh, how do we get rid of this discrepancy? Real easy. Let's get rid of or standardized testing. Uh, <laughs> well, if are, there's no test, then nobody can fail, right? Hey, then you've got no socioeconomic discrepancy in standardized testing, right? Uh, a big way of playing with the data used to be affirmative action until the recent Supreme Court decision. There were two basic ways of tackling these socioeconomic discrepancies, uh, either affirmative action, raising people up who haven't really you know, made the grade, but you're going to raise them up anyway. So uh, that helps you alleviate the discrepancy. Or since that tool has now been basically struck down by the Supreme Court, not just in university admissions, but their reasoning will apply across the board in employment and elsewhere. The other main tool is to lower standards, and that is now taking off like crazy. We see it. I mentioned the standardized testing. You have it in Oregon. They justify getting rid of certain requirements to graduate by saying, well, the impact is disproportionate on people of color. Therefore, let's just get rid of the requirement. Uh, they do it in equitable, so-called equitable grading, right? Uh, who cares about the performance of homework or in coming to school on time? As long as you pass the test at the end of the course, you'll do just fine, especially since we'll also allow you a makeup test. And for all I know, a third shot nowadays. It's all about fiddling the statistics and not treating the underlying conditions, well, this uh, just makes me sick because what kind of job is this poor person going to get? They're not. They're not going to get a good job, and they may not get a job at all if they get don't a job know basic and then do skills. Do a cruddy job at it. That's the worst part. You will get people who will go through law school, go through medical school. They have been helped along with all sorts of affirmative action and formerly now, and then lowering standards. 
and I think you will see this in med school and in law school and elsewhere where they're starting to lower the standards. So it's an you know, anti-racist medical school training and so on. Uh, and the result is we are going to train a lot of people out there and qualify them who really aren't that good at their jobs. Well, you know what's sad it's about bad that for society is in general. it's bad for the person. They're as much of a victim. It's like, remember years ago, that book, The Peter Principle, where they talked yeah. about people getting promoted uh, above where they should have been promoted. Psychologically, it's devastating for somebody to fail when if they'd done something else that they could have been very successful at, uh, they'd ultimately have a better life and and not have the psychological problem of either feeling like a token, feeling like somebody did you a favor, or feeling like a failure. All those things are very bad. And I know people, and I know people have told me, you're lucky you're an old Black person because <laughs> you went to school before affirmative action. So yeah. people just think because you're a woman and you're Black, you must have been really smart to overcome those barriers. That's how people would like to feel. People want to know that their talents are real and they're appreciated. Uh, and, by the way, there are some interesting uh, studies out there. Uh, Maryland, some interesting studies where they have looked at students who have been admitted to schools based on affirmative action. They've gotten into, you know, top level schools where they are not quite at the level of the other students and they do poorly. Whereas if they are admitted to schools where everybody is sort of at the same level, they prosper. So it's, uh, you know, you're, you're quite right. It doesn't really do the people who any benefit. Well, and there's studies that show that some of these folks who've gone to the Ivy League schools drop out after freshman year, and many are so demoralized, they don't even go to any college. Right. And that's what's really, really sad. Right. But, oh, it, you know, it just, it, it, I honestly, it makes me physically sick. And it, when it, I think about the people waste. who don't have jobs. That brings me to my next question that comes up is the circular reasoning behind policing. And now we're facing all oh, yeah. these crimes, these roving bands of kids who are well, sure. breaking into stores and and all the thing about, oh, well, we don't need police. We need social workers. Let me give you a specific oh. example from California about that. Because again, it if we get rid of standards, if we lower standards, right, then that, according to the CRT folks, reduces systemic racism. So what do we do in California? We lowered the uh, penalties for shoplifting. Basically, you can shoplift anything up to $900 value and walk out the store. Uh, we've even had legislation proposed in California that it would be illegal for the store owner to try and stop you from doing that. Uh, so... And the, the result has been lowering standards. By the way, the reason given for that was because minority members of ethnic minorities are more likely to be charged with shoplifting on a per capita basis than uh, white folks without looking at all at the fact that maybe the reason for that is they engage in shoplifting at a higher frequency, just like, for instance, capital crimes. The result has been the standard was lowered, and that triggered these 
mass raids on Nordstrom's and have basically ruined San, downtown San Francisco. You look at downtown San Francisco now with, you know, plywood where uh, display windows used to be. Well, you know, and maybe some of those kids are the kids that were uh, told they could graduate high school with no verbal or math skills. So guess what? They don't get a job, so they go out and steal. It's, you know, it's terrible. Well, what do you, what you titled your book, The Critical Race Theory Scam. Let's get into what the scam is. What, uh, fortunately, uh, I, you know, which made me kind of happy in one sense, but sad in another, is the Black Lives Movement matter um, uh, has kind of come under scrutiny and it looks well, like it might fall apart. Well, that that was the real blatant scam. Uh, the Black Lives Matters uh, organization, uh, with their over ninety million dollars in donations in the year of George Floyd's death, I guess it was, and then the uh, uh, other, uh, they got into squabbles. Of course, they bought a couple of villas and stuff, and uh, so I think uh, one of the founders brother-in-law or brother was hired to provide security at an outlandish uh, fee and so on. And now they're embroiled in litigation between a couple of factions of uh, uh, Black Lives Matter. Basically, it was $90 million paid by various corporations as uh, blackmail, you know, extortion. Excuse the expression. We will boycott of your uh, company if you uh, treat us right. We had an an incident in the little town of San Luis Obispo here in the middle of the the height of the summer of 2020 there when the riots were going on, where indeed a couple of folks uh, representing themselves as Black Lives Matter folks in town walked into a couple of restaurants here and told the restaurant owners, we really need a donation. And I mean, it's like out of the old Untouchables TV series. You don't want any trouble in your restaurant, do you? (laughs) <laughs> they pulled. They pulled that stunt. Uh, now that was some of the blatant scamming. Uh, Ibrahim X. Kendi. He runs this Institute of Anti-Racism at I think Boston University. And if people Google his name now, Ibrahim X. Kendi, and the term finances, they will see now all of a sudden that institute that had been given many tens of millions of dollars is under all sorts of criticism now for what it did with the funds and how it treated its employees and so on. One of the other big scams is simply all this diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting that goes on out there where they don't really achieve any results. It actually frustrates people who got into that business with good intentions. Uh, Governor uh, DeSantis in Florida, they passed laws to get rid of this stuff at the uh, uh, state university and college level down there in Florida. And they realized the savings of $34 million annually just from that one measure, getting rid of these uh, phony baloney uh, DEI departments and consultants and officers. Corporations have started to realize that they've been scammed and are cutting back on their DEI offices. Although, you know, they most of them put those DEI officers, uh, managers in place to 
have an alibi. Look what we're doing. We're actively fighting systemic racism. We've hired John Doe over here as the DEI officer. Well, you know, it, it's really rather sad because some of these trainings, it's just like, uh, well, you were trying to get a positive ethnic studies program, that some of these trainings are not positive. They're like Maoist struggle sessions where people oh. are told they have to say they're a racist and all this. How yeah. does that provide unity? It doesn't. I, I just can't imagine being a, if, well, you, you are a white person. How would you feel if you had to go into a room to keep your job and somebody started railing against you and telling you? I'd, I'd be out, that, I'd be personally, oh. I'd be outraged. Of course, I would be absolutely outraged and I would be uh, quickly doing what some people have done is I would uh, be litigating against that type of training. Well, you know, what's session. sad, though, on a personal level, certainly, you know, pretend you're not a lawyer. If you were some random schnook who's sitting there listening to that and you had had perfectly fine relationships with blacks or or uh, Mexican-Americans or, you know, other South Americans, Central Americans, whatever the race may happen to be. Yeah. And suddenly you feel like, you're looking at them side-eyed because you don't know, do they really feel that way about me? Do they really like me? And all those things. And then they've made it where you're afraid to openly discuss that with any friends who don't happen to be the same race as you are. Well, that that's the whole thrust of this CRT movement is indoctrination, indoctrination against the basic principles upon which this country is founded. It's an anti-individualist ideology. Well, and, and that's where we come full circle to where you began. It started off as a Marxist theory, a Marxist ideology. And it's interesting how people kind of embraced it for a while when we were being very anti-communist because it's like, well, Marxism is opposite to communism. And, and, you know, it's like in the second world war embracing Stalin because, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend yeah, kind of mentality yeah. without really thinking about it and thinking about to where this came from, that it's Marxist in origin. And that seems to be the ultimate goal. It's absolutely Marxist in origin, and as such, it is frankly not an intellectually sound uh, concept. Matter of fact, it is really simple-minded. you got to imagine, we're going to divide up our society consisting of 300-some-odd million people of all sorts of classifications and groups with huge social and geographic mobility, and we're going to divide them into two camps, the oppressors and the oppressed, and we're going to do it along race lines. This is just sheer idiocy. It's Now, that is truly stupid uh, as far as social science is concerned. But people have been making careers off it, and they continue to do well with it while causing tremendous harm to our society. Well, on that cheery note but a note that we all need to hear. Don't let 
these fools change our society that was really moving along swimmingly and that we were trying to get to that more perfect union. I just want to thank you, Christopher Aaron, for coming on the show. And tell us the name of your book again. Sure. Well, uh, again, it's The Critical Race Theory Scam, Dissecting a Racist Ideology. It's available on Amazon and uh, uh, Barnes and Noble and other online sites. And I wrote this book because it is, you know, when I restarted researching it, I found virtually nothing out there that had been written that was critical of critical race theory. There's one book that was released in 2021, a good book called Race Marxism by James Lindsay. And it's a philosophical analysis treatise. It's a little bit As such, it's a bit of heavy reading, but that was about the only other one out there. And I figured my book should be a little bit easier to read. And also, I applied analytic skills that I learned as a U.S. lawyer and a German qualified lawyer to uh, really show that critical race theory is intellectually lazy and foolish and leads to really bad results when you start applying it in practice. Well, thank you for writing the book. Thank you for coming on the show. We'll put a link to the book on the website. Thank you. Okay. And I just want to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. You know, we have the email feature where if you have a question for the host or the guest, you can just send an email and there's a place to do it right on the page of the show. And first names are fine and we'll get an answer back to you. We also have a big feature, americaoutloud.shop. And that's our shopping website. And it has the books by our guests and other books of interest. It has where you can actually get Cofix RX there and various other products. It's worth looking at. And we're very simple here. If you put in a code out loud, you could get a discount on whatever products you're interested in. So as I always say, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. Thanks again for listening. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud. <laughs>